Thank you for that music. Thank you for coming to ASI. Thank you for preparing your hearts to receive a spiritual blessing. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Colossians. That's the book of Colossians. We're going to turn to chapter 3. <clears throat> Several weeks ago, the program chair called me up at home and said that it was urgent. They needed to have a title for the keynote address, was what I'm doing this evening, and a description of it. In my heart, I thought it was fairly hard to describe something that didn't exist, much less give it a title. Um, but I had to because they were under pressure. They need to be ready. The program needs to be ready. And I should have been ready by, by then. I was being influenced at the time by what I was reading in the Spirit of Prophecy. And I was reading a vision uh, in a dream uh, in the little book, Early Writings. And so because I had these thoughts in my head, because these things were running around in there, I gave them a title right off the spot, uh, right off hand, and it was Look a Little Higher. Now that's a good title, and actually it's even good counsel. We need to look higher. We need to look up. I had you turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to look right for it, verse 1. If ye then being, be risen with Christ. Now in the book of Romans, it talks about baptism. It talks about being buried with Christ. It talks in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it talks about being crucified with Christ and dying in Him. Nevertheless, we are alive because He is alive through us. Tremendous blessing. And when He died, we died in Him. And when He was buried, in Him we were buried. And when He was resurrected, we also resurrected with Him to newness of life. This is what this is talking about here. If He then being risen with Christ to newness of life. If you've had a change of heart, if you've been born again, if you have new desires and new directions and new hopes, if you want to be like Jesus, I know how you can get there. This is what this is saying here. By beholding, we become changed. Do you know that there's not many other ways to become like Jesus? By beholding, we become changed. And I'd like to suggest to you tonight that we need to do a lot more beholding than we do. And sometimes we behold a lot of other things that corrupt what happens in our hearts. We're still there in verse 1. If ye, be, if, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on the things of this earth. What a wonderful counsel that is. Thinking of that little vision that I was seeing, that I was reading about at the time a few months ago, a young lady by the name of Ellen Harmon had her very first vision, and in her very first vision, she says she was lifted up far above the earth. This is what it says. So you got to get that in your mind, and the emphasis in my mind is that she was far 
above the earth. She went up. But when she was up there, she decided to look for the Advent people. That's what she called them. These are God's true people in the earth. So she's scanning the earth, and she can't find God's people. And she's wondering, why in the world is that? Except that the angel said to her, listen, you want to look up? Look a little higher. That's what he said. And when she looked higher, she saw a path, the way to salvation. She saw a path from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And at the beginning of the path, there was a bright light called the midnight cry that shone all the way up the path, all the way to the celestial city. And the people were not to deny that bright light behind them. And, you know, I don't have time this evening, to, this evening to explain what that bright light was all about except to say that the midnight cry shone its light. It magnified, it emphasized the moving of Jesus from the holy place of the sanctuary into the most holy place of the sanctuary. And God said we must never lose sight of that fact because if we do, we'll fall off the path to the dark world below. And she was also instructed for the people's sake that they needed to keep their eyes on Jesus. Now the people were high above her. So here she is, far above this world, and God's people are higher up still. And so there's, there's, there's symbolism here, and I think the symbolism is fairly clear. God's people are meant to be different. God's people are meant to be peculiar. God's people have been meant to, high, to have higher standards. God's people have a higher calling. If you remember Pilgrim's Progress, and I don't know if I can tell you exactly where it is, but this Pilgrim Christian, he's making his way through all these adventures, through all these experiences. He comes to somebody's house. I forgot the name of the person whose house it was. And this house had many rooms. And when he looked into one room, he saw a man with a muckrake. And the man was occupied with this muckrake, drawing to himself dust and sticks and straw. And all the while, there is hovering above the man an angel proffering to him the gift of eternal life. But he is so focused on the dust and on the sticks and on the straws of this world that he is missing what God is offering him from above. He is not looking up. He is looking down. And that's the symbolism of that. <clears throat> when I continued to read this vision, the vision went on to show that all this was about the 144,000. Now you can read all about the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 14. They have the Father's name written in their foreheads. They have the character of God in their frontal lobe. They are a people that are pure. They're not defiled with women. And the symbolism of women in the, in the scriptures, especially when it is a symbol, represents a church. And being that they're not defiled with these women, then obviously these women are corrupt somehow, or these churches are corrupt, and these people are not corrupted by these things. Besides that, they sing a new song, a song that was never sung by anyone in this world, but will be sung by these people in the last days, the 144,000. And ah, oh, I'd like to learn that song, wouldn't you? Oh, yes, yes. They follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Not only will they follow the Lamb, but they follow him now. 
And Jesus would lead us to the bedside of the sick. Jesus would lead us to the prison houses. Jesus will lead us to where people have real needs so that through us he can begin to meet the needs of those who have those needs. Do you know that the Tsar of Ages says, from the soul that feels his need, nothing is withheld. And there must be people out there who feel their need, who are appealing to God. And we are God's hands, aren't we? Yes, we are. And this is what the 144,000 are going to be like. They're going to be in God's hands. They're going to be used by heaven. They're going to go forward and they're going to be through God meeting the needs of the people around them. Get ready. Do it now. There are a lot of people who have needs. In point number five, of course, talking about the 144,000, it says they have no guile in their mouths, no deception. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when their mouths are open, everything that comes out is pure. It's coming from the throne of heaven. These folks are simple. They have an eye single to the glory of God. Their hearts burst with gratitude for what Jesus has done for them. Their hearts are on fire for the truth of God and for Jesus Christ and for helping other people, for doing evangelism. And what comes out of their mouths is all pure. Well, friends... If this is so, we've got to make sure what goes into our hearts, don't, don't you think? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because if we allow corruption in there, what do you think is going to come out? Yeah. It's an amazing calling, really, isn't it? It's an amazing thought that God would have us to focus so purely on pure things, so much on Jesus alone, that we receive none of the nonsense that this world would like to fill our hearts with that the enemy would like to fill our hearts with. When, when all this is all over, then the last verse in Revelation chapter 14, the last verse describing the 144,000, it says that they stand faultless before the throne of God. That's amazing. That's what I want. Ah, friends, I hope that you and I can, as, as the Spirit of Prophecy says, strive with all the power that God has given to us to be among the 144,000. And I think the emphasis there is on all the power that God has given unto us. I think there's a lot of people who have been wanting to be part of the 144,000 who focus on all the law, who focus on all the standards, who focus on all the, all the do's and don'ts that we have to do. And friends, I wouldn't knock that down for anything. No, I want to be like Jesus, and my whole life ought to reflect what he was like and what he would do. But listen, we're not going to do it in our own strength, and this has been our problem. We are to strive with all the power that God has given to us to be among the 144,000. And I'm trying to remember a verse Jesus spoke, he says, he that dwells within me, he doeth the works. He was talking about his Father. Well, it should be the same thing for us. He that dwells in us, he will do the work. He's promised to do it for us. And so my thought for today is, hey, look up. Set your affections on things above and not on the things of this world. And look a little higher. We have a right to because we have a need to. If he'll turn with me to Luke chapter... 21, you'll recognize that Luke chapter 21 is a prophetic uh, chapter. It's the same as Mark, excuse me, Matthew 24, this great chapter where Jesus outlines for us the signs of the times. This is the very same chapter. It just happens to be in Luke, and it's in Luke 21. And we're going to 
Uh, look together at verse 26. This is talking about the day in which we live. Now I assume you have a sense of the day in which we live. I don't know anyone in the Seventh-day Adventist church that doesn't know that we're living in the last time. We're living in the last times, and we can see it. And there are so many things happening out there. I didn't write any of this down. I mean, it, we don't have to. When we look at the economy, we know that it is held up artificially. If somebody would let this thing fall apart, the whole world would collapse. Can you imagine what the world would be like if the whole world, the whole financial world would collapse? It would be terrible. If the whole moral world would collapse, if the whole religious world would become a mess, Babylon, as it says in the scriptures, there's going to be terrible scenes before us. Now, it's amazing to me what it says here in verse 26, but we are not the only ones that are recognizing what is happening in the world today. Men's hearts are failing them for fear. What for? For looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And so people are seeing some things. Are you? Yes, you are. There's no doubt in my mind that you're seeing what's coming, okay? And there's got to be a solution to this. Does your heart burn with fear for seeing those things that are coming? Well, if you look two verses down, it says there that yours and my heart may well recognize what is happening in the world, can see how dangerous it is, but our hearts are not fearful. Look at verse 20, 28. And when these things begin to come to pass, do what? Look up. Lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. We may recognize all that is happening, and it's a funny thing. I don't know about you, but I get a lot of email messages, a lot of conspiracy theories coming my way. Does anybody, am I the only one that's getting all this stuff? It's coming from a lot of places, and it's constant, and it's constant, and it's constant. Conspiracy theories. Well, listen, all of it is not a lie. Much of it, I suppose, much of it will be the truth. But I'd like to ask you a question here. Have you ever heard a conspiracy theory that was positive? Have you ever heard a conspiracy theory that will end up, that will end up blessing somebody? No, all the conspiracy theories are negative and they seem to be geared to make people afraid. Isn't that right? Now, is this the kind of people that God wants? A fearful people? And if you spend all of your time reading conspiracy theories and passing conspiracy theories and, and studying conspiracy theories, what do you suppose will happen in your heart? Is this what we've been looking at? Is this what we would call looking up? I don't think so. I don't think so. And what's amazing to me, thinking in terms of God's unfolding of the future, God's prophetic word, it always ends up positive when it's talking about his own people. Now, does that tell us anything? Well, friends, it, it tells me something. Yeah. Just what we're speaking about this evening. Put this conspiracy theories aside. They are mostly speculation. Half of it won't happen, even if it does. So what? Don't you know that we have a God in heaven? Don't you know that he is more powerful than all that men can think to do? How long has the Illuminati been in this world? 
So we know where they want to go with their objectives. We know what they're charged to do. We know what they're up to. And if they haven't been able to accomplish that in 500 and 600 years, so why are we afraid of it today? Do you know that there's a God who measures all that and he allows nothing to get past him? And when you look at his prophecies, all of these things end up on the positive side for God's people. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that there's a time of trouble coming. And you might think that that's a, that's a terrible time. It's going to be more terrible than anything we understand. There's no doubt about that. I know that morally the world is sinking. Financially the world is sinking. Politically and religiously. But friends, will God's people be swept away with that current? No. No. Not if we keep our eyes on Jesus. Not if we abide in him. In Psalms 91, it's talking about the seven last plagues. Yeah. It says, no evil shall come nigh thy dwelling. No evil. Why? Because we inhabit the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why. That's all. And so who cares what the conspiracists tell us? Who cares? Look up. Set your affections on things above. Rehearse God's promises. And, and friends, do you believe God's promises? Amen. How much do you believe God's promises? Can I test whether you really believe God's promises or not? Yeah. Let's turn together to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. It's a common story. This is the um, centurion. Matthew, excuse me, I think it's Matthew chapter 8. I've got that wrong. Matthew chapter 8, it's verse 5. When Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. Now what's a centurion? Well, it's a soldier. And in that day, it was a Roman soldier. And a Roman soldier in that day had a pagan background. This man was not anything like a pagan, but this was his background. So he comes... A man whose background is pagan, he's a centurion, he's a soldier over, what, 100 men? Is he a pussycat? No way he's not a pussycat. This is a hard man, a strong man. And he comes to Jesus and he, has, he makes a request of Jesus. And friends, listen, if this man is heard, watch verse 6, saying, Lord, my servant lies at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. How much time elapses between the time that the, the soldier makes a request and Jesus responds to the request? There is no time. It's immediate. And if Jesus would respond to a centurion that way, if Jesus would be immediate as soon as he senses a need, as soon as he finds a man who feels his need, from the soul that feels his need, nothing is withheld. God is right there. Come to me. Tell me your need. I will meet your need. And that's what this guy did. He came to Jesus, a Roman soldier. And Jesus says, I'm coming right now. Right now, I'm coming. Don't you suppose he would do the same for you? Whatever's happening in this world? Ah, oh, friends, God is so gracious. I would just hope that we would have faith. More faith than we've ever experienced before. As much faith as this man demonstrates. He says in um, verse 8, after Jesus says, I'm coming, he says, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. 
but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. Now what's interesting here, in Luke chapter 7 we have the same story and the Pharisees were there in Luke chapter 7. They're there here too, but they're just not mentioned. And the Pharisees, hearing what this intention of this man was, runs ahead of the centurion, comes to Jesus, and they say to Jesus, this man is worthy because he has built us a synagogue. Now the man turns around, he gets to Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm coming, and the man says, I am not worthy. Well, there's a dichotomy here. Is he worthy or is he not worthy? Well, friends, listen, nobody is worthy. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And what blows my mind is that the Pharisees were seminarians. The, sem the Pharisees had been to rabbinical schools. The Pharisees had been to the schools of the prophets. They were students of the Bible. They were theologians in their day. And the, they missed the most basic fact in theology that humanity are sinners by nature, unworthy of anything. We're here in this world because of the cross of Calvary. Jesus paid the price. We have life today because he paid that price. Now, the theologians of the day don't understand it. It's amazing, isn't it? And a pagan Roman soldier comes along and says, no, I understand this. I understand this. I've been close enough to Jesus. The closer you come to Jesus, the more faulty you will appear in your own eyes. That's what it says. So somehow this man has been coming closer and closer and closer to God, and he begins to see the contrast between himself and his God, and he feels unworthy. But there's something more beautiful to look at here. In spite of the fact that he feels unworthy, did it stop him from coming? No, because he understood grace also. What is grace? Unmerited favor, that's what it is, to the utterly undeserving. In spite of the fact that this man felt utterly undeserving, it didn't stop him from coming because for whatever reason, he knew who Jesus was. And the proof of the fact that he knew that Jesus was God, which is another amazing fact coming from a Roman soldier, is that he said to Jesus, all you have to do is speak and the thing will happen. Yeah. Then he illustrates it in verse 9. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. I say to this man, go, and he goes to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. He had power in his word, and as a captain in the army, all he had to do was say, jump, and the men jump. It's something like all of you mothers in here. When you speak to your children and you say, do this, they do it. Right? Well, they ought to do it. There ought to be power in your word. Well, I understand. We're not as powerful in our word as we think we are or ought to be. We're not as powerful as a captain in the army because they have methods that make men move. Yeah. But the illustration is true. The man understood who Jesus was. And do you know that Jesus was surprised? Jesus was surprised. Now, you can't catch Jesus by surprise, can you? But look at verse um, 10. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. He marveled. Yeah. And he said to them that followed, Verily, I say to you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Who is Israel? Uh-huh. 
Sure, in that day, it was God's chosen people. It was God's own church. It was the true church of the day. So Jesus comes down from heaven. He's God. He comes down to this world. He comes to his own people, to his church, and he looks for faith, and he can't find it. He finds it in a Roman soldier way back there. And Jesus is scratching his head, and he marvels, how does this happen? Really, how does this happen? Yeah, if Jesus should come down today and come to your church, would he find the kind of faith that he found in this Roman soldier? Do you think? Yeah, I'm looking at a couple of new Adventists, and they're saying yes. I'm looking at the old Adventists, and they're going like, I don't know. <laughs> I love the faith of new converts. Yeah. Everything is positive, and it ought to be positive. And if everyone was positive, the thing we were positive about would turn out to be positive because God could bless this thing. God could bless us. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're not going to pick on our churches. What about this auditorium today? How much faith is represented here? Do you believe like this man believed that every word that God has spoken will come to pass if you believe it? And by the way, that is the condition here. We can see that in uh, verse 11. I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the children of the kingdom, the church members, shall be cast out into utter darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Isn't that sad? Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way. And as you have believed, proportionate to the faith invested in the word of God and in the promises of God, so be it done unto thee. And obviously his servant was healed from the selfsame hour because he believed. Because he trusted Jesus. Because he knew who Jesus was. And when Jesus made a promise, the thing was cash. Right there, he knew he could count on it. He knew he could bank on it. Now, friends, I would wish, I would desire, I would like to see that in our individual hearts, we had that kind of faith. So that every promise in the book, it's been lately, it's been bugging me. I've been going through the scriptures. I go through the scriptures a lot, in my own personal devotions, or because I'm having to prepare sermons all the time. I go through the scriptures, and sometime, sometimes I light upon a promise that makes no sense, that is bigger than we are used to in this world, and we don't credit it. I don't credit it. <laughs> Maybe I should say it that way. Very simple verses. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Now, is this the Adventist world that he loved? Is this the Christian world that he loved? It's everyone in the world that he loved. And what did he do to everyone in the world? He gave his son to everyone in the world. He did it. He did it before we were born. He did it before we were born again. He did it while we were yet enemies, while we were yet without strength, while we were yet ungodly. He did it. He, he gave his son to everyone in the world. And do you know that in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, it says, and with his son he has freely given us what? All things. Do you have all things tonight? You have all things tonight. Do you believe it? That's it. That's it. I was telling someone yesterday, I was telling a group of someones yesterday, 
that there was a time when I had wished that I could be wealthy like some people are wealthy until I woke up to the fact that I am wealthy. Just because God has put money in people's pockets and put money in trust to these people doesn't mean I don't have it because my God will supply what? All my needs. If I believed that my God would supply all my needs, what would I ever, ever worry about? I could not worry because my God will supply all my needs. He said so. It's a promise. Can't you hear the promise? Do you ever worry? Is there anyone in here that never worries? Don't raise your hands. Well, you probably won't. <laughs> There's no reason to. Can you see it? Can you see that you have all things? Can you see what it means to be a Christian? Can you see what Jesus did at the cross of Calvary? He paid the price, turns around, gives us his righteousness, and in his righteousness, his righteousness is invested with all things. And you can call upon all things, and it is true from the, to the soul that feels his need. Nothing is withheld, that's for sure. Well, if we believed that promise, we would have all things. In Luke chapter 6, verse 38... I'm not going to turn there. I don't know if I have a lot of time or if I don't have a lot of time, but I'm going to finish before I'm over. Um, Luke chapter 6, verse 38. It says, Give, and it shall be given to you. Shaken together, pressed down, heaped up. With what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. That's pretty well a paraphrase, but you've read the verse before, and that's what it says. Proportionate to your faith, proportionate to your giving, it shall be given to you. If you really believe this promise, if you really believe that you cannot outgive God, if you really believe that you'll gain more by giving more, I just preached a sermon that the title of which was, He Gains Most Who Gives Most. Now, if we really believe this promise, given it shall be given to you more than you have given, then how much would you give if you really believed it? All. Yeah. That's right. Can you begin to see that perhaps our faith is not as strong as we think it is? Oh, we would like to say that we are Christians. We would like to say that we believe every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God but we act not exactly like the promises, the promises give us the promise. You understand? Yeah. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus said, the Father that dwells in me, he shall do the work. He doeth the works. Then he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me, he that exercises faith in me. Greater works than these shall he do because I go to my Father. Is it true? So if you really believe that, what would you do? Would you say no when the call comes? How many people have been called of God to serve? Do you know that Mark 13, 34 says that to every man, to every woman, to every Christian, is given his work. And it would be interesting to know how many excuses have been made as to why we can't do that work. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too fat. I'm too tall. I'm too skinny. 
I'm too, I'm not educa educated, I have too many children, I don't have any children. You know, we can come up with all the excuses that are in the book. And the real reason is, first of all, maybe first of all, we are afraid that we can't do it. While the promise is, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Is it true? Matthew 17 verse 20 says, nothing shall be impossible unto you. What amazing promises that is. If you knew you couldn't fail, what would you attempt? Well, friends, I wouldn't want you attempting just anything. That wouldn't be right. But God has a purpose for you in life. God can determine what he wants from you. God will ask something that is bigger of you than you think you are. And he does that because he wants to reveal himself. It is through weakness that he shows strength. When I am weak, then am I strong. And if I didn't believe that one, I wouldn't be standing here tonight. And there's a lot of people in this room who wouldn't be standing here at all, ever, because they'd be scared to death of standing here. But if God would call you to it, don't back off. Because you can do all things. Nothing shall be impossible unto you. And all that it means is believing every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. All things, for we know, it says, for we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. Everybody knows that promise. Everyone, almost everyone has this promise memorized. The problem with this promise, of course, is we don't believe it. I had a friend came to us in Zambia. He was an ophthalmologist. He came to do some cataract surgery. He was 82 years old. He hadn't done cataract surgery in quite some time. He was quite nervous about doing cataract surgery. But when he did do it, he did a fantastic job. This was wonderful. But one day he heard me preaching on Romans 8, verse 28, all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. And he was angry. We had lunch together and he was stewing. And finally, he just exploded because he said there is one verse in the Bible that isn't true and I can prove it. Now, how many of you would like to be, would be able to say, I know one verse in the Bible that isn't true and I can prove it? Well, we wouldn't stretch ourselves that, that far, but he was sure that he could prove it. You see, he had been in a concentration camp in Japan for four years, and he said, nothing good ever came of this. Well, friends, he didn't realize that if you don't believe a promise, you negate the promise that you don't believe. It's just that simple. Obviously, nothing good came of it because he couldn't trust God to draw out that which was good in that situation. Not very long ago, and I don't know if my daughter is watching. <laughs> I'm going to tell a story on her. She called me some three, four years ago. I was at a gas pump in uh, Loveland, Colorado, and my phone rings, and it's my daughter, and she is crying. She is crying. God doesn't love me anymore. He doesn't hear my prayers anymore. I mean, I don't know what to believe anymore. And on and on. She'd been trying to buy a house. This was house number three or four or whatever it was, and every deal had fallen through. And she was so discouraged because she just, just couldn't get to buy a house. She wanted one passionately. So I said to her, well, Julie, 
Don't you know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord? Yes, I know that's what it says, but it's not true for me. <laughs> I said, well, that's true. It's not true for you because you don't believe it. So I went home being a dad and doing what a dad should do. I went home and wrote an email. Actually, it was a sermon in an email on Romans 8, verse 28. And I sent it to her. She called me back two or three days later, and I answered the phone, and she said, Dad? I said, yeah. She said, I repent. <laughs> yeah. A little while after that, the Lord gave her the house that she wanted, and she's going to live happily ever after. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hard to believe God's promises, right? Mm -hmm. In Luke 19, verse 10, it says, Nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nothing? Well, that doesn't make any sense at all. Well, friends, it doesn't make any sense at all unless you believe it. Do you know that God can override anything? Do you know that God means exactly what he says? In Luke chapter uh, 10, verse 19, Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples. And when he's speaking directly to his disciples, he is speaking directly to you, he's speaking directly to me, if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And his word to you and I is, nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nothing. Do you know what nothing means? Now, I suppose you've stubbed your toe. I suppose you've hammered your nail. I suppose you've bit your lip or your tongue, and it hurts, right? This isn't what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is looking at the big picture, and he says, I don't care what the devil throws at you. By the time it's over, big picture, nothing shall by any means hurt you because I will take what the devil throws at you. I will turn it to your advantage. Can you believe it? Ah, friends, it's true. It's true. It's been true in my life. You know, a lot of people, I guess, would like to say, yeah, yeah, it's true for a little while, but wait, someday something's going to happen and you're going to question whether this is true or not. Well, I don't know. I've been a Seventh-day Adventist for 39 years, and it's been true for 39 years. Yeah, yeah, but you're getting older. <laughs> and you wait until you hit 70, 75, 80, 85, I don't know if I'll get that far, but if I should hit that, you know, after that, nothing works together for good. Nothing works at all. <laughs> well, that means just for some. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, really. <laughs> yeah. No. It's still true. God has a good thing going. He really does. Do you know that he brings us into this world young and vibrant and healthy and strong and the older we go, the, the more we weaken. The temptation when we are strong is to trust, trust in our strength. Does that make sense? Of course. And he's given us talent. And when we're, when we're young, we're good looking. And when we're young, we're powerful. And when we're young, we're on top of the world and everything is wonderful. And it's hard to believe or it's hard to be dependent on someone outside of yourself when you have everything inside of yourself, you see. But God says, I've got a plan. I've got a plan. You know what's going to happen? You're going to grow old. <laughs> and year by year, this strength and this beauty and this intelligence and everything else that you're banking on today will decline. It will decline. 
And the older we get, the more dependent we are on people around us, and the more we begin to feel our weakness. And the Bible says, when I am weak, then am I strong. Do you see how God has organized it so he can save us? Yeah. What is justification by faith? A question that Ellen White asked, and she answers. She says it is the work of God. Two things. I'm going to tell you the second thing is to do for man what the man cannot do for himself. I would like for God to do everything for me that I cannot do for myself. But he can't do it unless he does the first thing. And do you know what it is? To lay the glory of man in the dust. He has to do that for every soul in the world. It's a promise. It's a promise. And he will do it. In heavenly places, page 265, it says... He is the orderer of all our experiences. How many? All. Does that make any sense? Ministry of Healing 417, and he only orders that which his providence sees best. Nothing happens to you by chance. Mount of Blessing 71, and I don't have it here. I'm having to depend on my poor brain. But in, I'm, going to, I'm going to paraphrase it. In Mount of Blessing 71, Ellen White pictures God's people abiding in Jesus. And when we're abiding in Him, we're surrounded by Him. And everything that comes to us has to come to us through Him. And nothing gets to us by, by, but by His permission. And what He permits will work together for good to them that love Him, to them that abide in Him. What amazing promises. And how positive, how optimistic... How full of faith, how full of confidence, how full of joy should God's people be? Shouldn't we? Yes, because we have a God who has made promises that are out of this world, that blow me away. If they don't blow you away, they blow me away. In Desire of Ages 224, it says, if we could see the end from the beginning, we would choose no other way to be led than the way in which we have been led. Now, I've got to bring a balance to this for sure. Not everything works together for good. Did you know that? Now, it says everything, but it's everything outside of you that comes at you that works together for good. You, what comes from inside of you, can destroy yourself. You can make decisions. You can tell God to go jump in the lake. You can tell him you don't want him in your life. You can turn your back on God. You can devote your life to sin. You can. And if you do, you will suffer the consequences this will not work together for good. I say that, but I have seen in my own life when I have made mistakes that God has taken them to my advantage. So there are some things we do, some decisions we make that do work together for good. But you can't kill yourself. You can't destroy yourself. Yeah. If we could see the end from the beginning, we would choose no other way to be led. When we get to heaven... And we decide we're going to look back at our lives. Do you think at any time that we're going to point at some place in our experience where God made a mistake? Do you think? No, we may be able to point to many places where you, where you and I have made mistakes. And we have made plenty of mistakes. But you'll have a hard time finding where God has made a mistake in your case. There's no doubt about that. Can you point? Do you expect anything negative in your future? Don't. Go with me to 
and we're done in just three minutes. Jeremiah 29, you know the verse very well. Jeremiah 29, I wish I had a different translation. This is the King James. Jeremiah 29, we're looking at verse 11. God speaking, he says, I know the thoughts, I know the plans that I have toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end, to give you a wonderful future. This is God's plan for your life. Is it true? Even today, is it true? When we watch the world where we see what's happening in the world, is it still true? Will it be true in the time of trouble? Will it be true during the battle of Armageddon? Ah, friends, listen. God's promises are true. They're true to God's people all the time. I'm not saying that we're not going to have a hard time during the time of trouble. It'll be the worst time. It'll be the worst time that we've ever experienced, ever. But if you have focused on Jesus during your lifetime before the time of trouble, if you have made him your God, if you have believed his promises, if he means everything to you, and you do mean everything to him, by the way, then whether we go through a time of trouble or the battle of Armageddon or a little time of trouble or the national Sunday law or we get thrown in jail or we get exiled on an island, it won't matter a hoot because God will be there. Lift up your heads is what the Bible says. Look up, look a little higher and keep your gaze up there. Don't be groveling in the things down here below. Set your affections on things above and not on the things of this world. And friends, the Lord will carry us through. How many people are negative and pessimistic and discouraged and depressed? Now, I understand there's chemical depression that has nothing to do with faith or lack of faith. I understand there's a lot of variables. Still and all, still and all, is God not there and his word is it not true what do you think oh yes I'd like to invite you to uh, just bow with me and we're going to talk to the Lord about this Heavenly Father Lord it's a blessing to look at your promises to see the, how big they are to see what they mean to see what they would do for us if we actually believed them, if we actually made decisions in harmony with the will of God, the promises would all be fulfilled to us. And we thank you and we thank you and we thank you. We know that you are God. We know that you love us. We know that you've gone to the cross. We know that you've paid the penalty. We know that you offer us your own righteousness. Ah, oh, Lord, my assurance is in what you have done and in nothing that I have done, I Depend on your merits. You are God. Thank you for being my God and our God. And bless us this weekend, Heavenly, Heavenly Father. Bless with thy Holy Spirit everyone that is going to speak here in this pulpit and in the seminars. And may we go home with power. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries.
If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.